All right, so we're taking a look at the book of Acts. This is uh, just our second uh, lesson in Acts. And our, our focus in the book is to think about witnessing or evangelism. We want to look at how the early church began and continued its ministry of sharing the gospel, how powerful that was and why it was powerful. And then how we can become or, and be even more that kind of church that shares our faith with power too. And uh, last week we saw some of the foundational things. Uh, this mission is spiritual. Uh, the, the mission of the church is not a physical or a, or a civil mission, but a spiritual one. And it has behind it spiritual power. Not physical power, not human power, but spiritual power. Which is why Jesus said to the disciples, wait. Uh, this was very good. He said, go, and then he said, wait. Which seems to be contradictory, but... We always have to wait on the Lord as we go or even before we go, uh, waiting on God in uh, humble expectation that he's going to keep his promise for the Holy Spirit. Well, I began to think uh, there are different kinds of waiting, aren't there? Uh, there's some waiting that is inactive. Uh, if you're waiting on something that's completely out of your hands, then you don't really have much you can do except just See what happens. It's, it's in somebody else's hands, some other person. You just kind of exist and go about your business while they decide what they're going to do. But there's another kind of waiting that is very active, isn't there? This is the kind of waiting that we might call preparation. And I want to show you this morning or this evening um, from these verses that we read that the apostles were waiting in Jerusalem for these 10 days between the ascension and Pentecost. 10 days of waiting. But this waiting was the active kind of waiting was not the passive kind God had given them already some things that they could do to prepare themselves to be a witnessing church and they're the very same things that we as a church need to do to also continually prepare to be a witnessing church a good analogy to think about is for example when you're waiting to go on a trip that's an active kind of waiting because what are some of the things you need to do to go on that trip. Pack, book, arrange things with your pets, all this kind of stuff that you're working through your whole list. It's active waiting. Uh, your, your activity doesn't speed up the day that the trip happens, but it certainly does get you ready for it when it does happen. And that's what I want you to think about that the apostles are doing in verses 12 to 26. They're Packing their bags, if you will, for this trip that God's about to send them on. The date is settled by God. They can't speed that date up. It's the, the date 10 days later when the Holy Spirit fell with power on the church. By the way, they didn't know it was going to be 10 days. They actually had no idea when it would be. Uh, but this whole time, they're packing their bags to prepare for that day. And they're, they're doing two things. If you'll look at your bulletin. This is our outline tonight. Two points. Very simple. They prayed and they provided what was needed for the ministry of the word. They were persistent in prayer and they were faithful in the regular ministry of the word that they were going to need to engage in once the spirit came. All right, let's look at those two things. They, they prayed. Um, some things, maybe you, you can fill in the blank here, some things uh, aren't received until they're applied for. So Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Um, he said, if you ask, you will 
receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be answered you, right? So the, the kind of the flip side of all those is if you don't seek, you won't find. If you don't knock, the door won't be open. If, if you don't uh, ask, you won't get it, right? Uh, pretty simple, right? Uh, that's the way prayer is. Uh, God has already promised so many things to his people, so many things to his church. But a lot of those promises he has planned to deliver through the means of the prayers of his people. Don't you know this is true? Uh, sometimes we think, okay, if God has already planned the whole history of the world, which we believe he has planned all things because God is sovereign, then why pray? Well, here's why. God also planned for you to pray. And God planned to do X, Y, and Z because this person and that person and the other person prayed for it. And he didn't plan to do it without your prayers. And so the, the equation still holds true even if you have a very strong view of the sovereignty or the rule of God. It still holds true that we have to pray. Uh, you know, every young person uh, as a senior in high school knows this lesson. You don't get into any of the colleges you don't apply for. Right? And you know this from your own life. You don't get any of the jobs you don't interview for. Isn't that true? Uh, unless, you know, they just want you that bad and they, they found you somehow and, and called you. You don't get any of the jobs or any of the college admissions that you don't first apply yourself to get. And so the, to the church, I want you to see, understood this by instinct. And it's something that I hope we as a church also understand by instinct and in that it's, all, it's a part of our blood as Greater Hope Church. That we believe in consistent and persistent prayer as the most basic foundation for everything we do. Notice in verse 12, when they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet. Now, why is the mountain called Olivet important? Because that's where Jesus ascended. By the way, the mount called Olivet is the same thing as the Mount of Olives. Uh, it tells us here it's a very close walk from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And that means it's not like a day's journey away. It's a Sabbath day's journey away. And what that meant was in, in the Jewish tradition of the time, this is not from the Old Testament, but from Jewish tradition, you could only walk a thousand steps on the Sabbath. No more. Than that, if you walked more than a thousand steps, you were violating the Sabbath in their view because you were working too much. You were exerting yourself too much. Well, how, how far is a thousand steps? It depends on the steps. It depends on the steps, but I don't have my watch to track steps on right now, but most of us have those watches. How many of you achieve a thousand steps a day? Probably most all of us at least. It's pretty easy, right, to do a thousand. You can do a thousand steps just walking around your own house. And so the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem are very near to each other. But even though they're near to each other, the very fact that the disciples went back to Jerusalem proves something about their mindset. Besides the, so the ascension happened in the Mount of Olives, what had happened in Jerusalem just recently? The crucifixion. Uh, what had happened in that upper room where they went to meet to pray? Betrayal, Last Supper, you know, 
all that stuff. That's where they had hid themselves because they were afraid after the crucifixion of Jesus. For them to go from the Mount of Olives, just those 1,000 steps back to Jerusalem, was itself an act of faith, an act of dependence. I would argue the only reason they went back is because Jesus specifically told them to go back. We read about that last week. I want you to wait in Jerusalem. You can't go anywhere else. It's got to be in Jerusalem because that's where I'm going to pour out my spirit for the first time, for the great time upon my church. You've got to be there. You've got to be within the, the temple uh, precincts when, for that to happen. That's my will. And so the disciples said, okay. And as they did it, you can imagine in their hearts the fear. You can imagine in their hearts the doubt that they might have. And yet, their instinct in all that fear and all that doubt, all 11 of them, was to devote themselves, verse 14, to devote themselves to prayer with one accord. Along with the 11 apostles who were left, there were also the women. That's what it says, the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, along with Jesus' brothers. Uh, the women, we know from Luke's gospel, were the women that had followed Jesus from Galilee everywhere he went. And uh, many of those women had cared for the needs of the apostles and had helped, them make, had helped make their mission possible. Some of them were wealthy women and even gave out of their money to support the mission as it went around for those three years that Jesus ministered. That's the women that were there. Uh, the reason it mentions Mary and Jesus' brothers is why. Maybe somebody knows. What's that? They could be asked. Yep, because yep, Mary's mentioned by name, and the brothers are known by name. That's right. These are newcomers to the group. Uh, the women and the eleven had already been with Jesus for three years. Mary, of course, was his mother, and she had always had a believing and sympathetic point of view. But his brothers, we know for a fact, were positively disbelieving. Uh, the only time or the, or the first time that they come to believe is when they see Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's James and all the rest. And so you can imagine this early congregation. This is the first church plant in history. 120 people in all, uh, led by the 11 remaining apostles, but filled out with, with women, probably the children and wives of the apostles who were there, Somehow they got up to 120 people in this tiny room. Uh, I've been in Jerusalem to a room that they call the upper room. Uh, I'm not sure if that is actually the real upper room. More than likely not, but they call it that um, because it's probably nearby the site where this occurred and the room is no bigger than the one we're in right now. That's the room. Uh, that's what's going on. And they, what are they doing the whole time? They're praying. Uh, they're scared. They don't know what's going to happen next, but they believe that Jesus is going to keep his promise somehow. It tells us three very important things about their prayer. It tells us first that they prayed in one accord. In one accord. Uh, that means they were united. They prayed together. They agreed together with what they prayed for. Um, what, what do you think, by the way, what, what were their prayers? What did they contain, do you, do you imagine, at this stage? If you could be a f 
What's the protection? Yeah, oh yes. Keep us from those guys that just took away the Lord. What else? Come back. <laughs> yeah. uh, keep us strong. Yes, get more believers. You know, increase our, our numbers, but also increase our faith. Um, help us in this mission that you've just told us we're going to have. We're not sure yet how exactly we are going to do this. How are we going to become your witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria? And you just told us the ends of the earth. How are we going to do that? Lord, give us what we need to do that. Uh, how do we know anybody is going to believe us? Uh, so far, uh, you know, 40 to 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, so far we got about 120 people. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a pretty good growth rate to get 120 people in 40 days. But it's not a great growth rate if you consider a guy just rose from the dead. You would imagine, you know, if you had that evidence, the growth rate would have been quicker, right? And so they're probably wondering, how is this going to, how is this going to work? Now, we're going to find out next week when the Holy Spirit comes, the growth rate, whoo, you know, it gets really big, really quick. And it's likely as well that there were others beyond this 120 who believed they just weren't among the committed core. They weren't willing to show up to the core group meeting. Um, these were the committed. And they were probably bathing in prayer in a united way the work that Jesus said they were going to have to do. That's so important for any church to not only receive the instructions from God, from the scripture as to what we're to do as a church. This is our constitution. This tells us what we're supposed to do and who we're supposed to be. But to take that and to bathe that in prayer, right? It's, it's not enough simply to take it and try to obey it in our own strength. We have to pray through in a united way what God has called us to do. And it tells us not only were they together in concert in prayer, but they were doing it constantly. So in concert and constantly, uh, they were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. I believe it's the NIV that says they were continually in prayer. Maybe somebody who might have the NIV could confirm that, but I think it uses the word continually. Um, what does that imply? They didn't stop. They kept going. Okay, so 10 days of prayer. I mean, this is a long prayer meeting as far as prayer meetings go. Of course, they stopped to sleep. Of course, they stopped to eat and things like that. But for 10 days, we get this impression that they really never left the upper room except for necessities. They devoted themselves to a 10-day-long prayer and maybe even some fasting in there, uh, bathing what they were to do uh, before the presence of God in prayer. And, and the final thing that we get here is this. And you've got to kind of read between the lines a little bit, but I, I want to try to make this case. They were consistent in their prayers okay uh, listen to what it says once again these all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers now how were they how were they in one accord all together well how did they agree on what to pray for
Go back in your mind and think about it. How did they all get on the same page? It's not like they had a, you know, a long time to prepare for this prayer meeting. It just all of a sudden spontaneously started. How did they get on the same page and all together were agreeing what to pray for? That's right. This is a, and I, like I said, you got to read between the lines, but it's not too far between the lines to imagine that their prayers were entirely based on the promise that God had already given them. That's how they got their union in prayer. And so if you take those three together, you have a lesson for the ages for the church. Uh, we are to continually bathe what we do in prayer. We are to unitedly pray together. And we are to get what we pray for from the promises that God has laid down in his word. Uh, one writer says it this way. This is John Stott. He says, it is only the promises of God, only the promises of God, which give us the warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. And, and this is a lesson maybe you hadn't thought through before. We only have a warrant to pray for something if we believe it's the will of God. And the only way we can believe it's the will of God is we've heard it from his word, from his promise. But when we've heard something from his word as a promise, then not only do we have a warrant, we've got a confidence. Do you know those verses, like we already mentioned, Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. But you know the, the other verse in uh, John uh, that says, whatever you ask according to God's will, you will get. And a lot of times we read those and we're embarrassed by those verses, aren't we? Or when Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. We're kind of embarrassed by those. Why, why are we embarrassed by those verses? We doubt them. Why do we doubt them? Well, we're, af we're afraid. Well, why are we afraid? Doesn't always happen. That's right. Yeah, we are embarrassed by those because we doubt them, because we're afraid of them, and probably because we've had some experience in the past where we thought we were asking rightly and we didn't get the way we thought we should, and so we thought those verses have been invalidated by our experience. And so we, we, we don't want to quote them too much because it's like we're walking out on a limb that we're afraid is going to break out from under us. Here's the solution to that conundrum. According to his will. Highlight, underline, circle, star. Right? According to his will. That is how we are to pray. That is what God gives us confidence to receive. Not just anything. It's not like a blank check where, you know, whatever you desire. If you, he's not a genie. The Lord is not a genie. Uh, the Lord does everything according to purpose. Prayer is you participating by calling on God to fulfill his promises and purposes because he loves when his people call on him according to his purpose and then to, because of that calling, respond because it encourages us and it glorifies him according to his will. This early church received its confidence and its warrant and its union in prayer and its zeal to pray from the fact that Jesus had said, go to Jerusalem and wait, and then, I guarantee it, the promise of the Father will come. And so they prayed.
Now, what have we been given in terms of promises that we aren't praying for, that we need to be praying for in terms of our evangelism as a church? Right. What has God promised about that, Alex? That's right. I will call my sheep by name, and they will listen, and they will come. Right? What has he promised? Go and tell the gospel, and it will be a sweet-smelling savor of life to those who are being saved. Oh, but it will be a stench of death to those who are perishing. But either way, bring it out there. Let it out there so that everybody's it's revealed which way people are headed so that everybody can see and know. Um, there's many promises about evangelism in the Bible. Um, there's the promise uh, given that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. And who, how can they hear, it says, unless someone speaks, preaches? And how can they preach or speak unless they're sent? And so there's all kinds of things we can pray for related to the evangelistic efforts of our church that I would argue if we're not praying for, we can't expect to receive. But if we pray for it, we can expect to receive it because the Lord has promised it. Now, we can't put numbers on it. We can't say, God, convert 10,000 people in the next 10 years. Uh, I mean, we might want that. And there's nothing wrong, I suppose, with letting the Lord know we want that. But we don't have a promise that it's going to be that kind of explosive fruitfulness. But we, have, we are promised fruitfulness of some level if we'll pray. Let me give you a thought experiment. Imagine if the story were different. Imagine if these 11 and the women and Mary and the brothers of Jesus, when they went back to Jerusalem, did something else besides pray. Like, what were some of the other things they could have done? Billboards, yes. Yeah, potlu potlucks. They could have had endless potlucks. I like that. <laughs> it could have been. It could have been dinner in the upper room, day by day. It could have been anything. Um, they could have gotten antsy and started going out to share before they had prayed. More than likely, given how afraid we know they were, it probably would have been the opposite. They could have sat around moping and sharing horror stories and fears. And Well, isn't that how sometimes our prayer meetings can go? They can devolve into a, I'm not saying ours as a church, but you know, you've been to these prayer meetings where it just becomes a, oh, you know, depressing woe is me session. Rather than a, Yes, take woe is me and bring it to the Lord with, with this confidence that God wants to hear. I'm so thankful that these early disciples didn't do that. I'm so thankful that they gathered together and they devoted themselves to prayer because we're here tonight because they did. And then, if you want to extend it out, how many other times in the history of the church from then to now have groups of people done the same praying 
and the Lord has stretched forth his hand to save that has resulted eventually into us being saved and brought into the kingdom. In fact, I can't think of a single time in the history of the church uh, when a great revival or awakening of the church has occurred without prayer first. In fact, I don't know anyone who's become a Christian without someone praying for them to become a Christian before they became a Christian. I don't know anyone. Um, every one of us. And it may even be people we didn't know were praying for us. But I'm, I guarantee you, you probably know at least one that you know by name that was praying for you before you became a Christian. This is the way God works. Uh, one of the, mo the most encouraging stories in, in relationship to this, just to show you that this wasn't just the early church. This is a pattern throughout church history. Um, the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in America. You know how that began? We, we always talk about how it began with powerful preaching. And yes, it did in a sense. But prayer preceded the preaching. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was one of the ones to powerfully preach to begin the, the first Great Awakening in the 1740s, uh, started in the 1720s and 30s to gather ministers and other Christians together in what he called concerts of prayer. He, he would gather people from various churches in various towns in New England and get them praying together that a revival would come. He would write to his friends across the pond over in Scotland and England and ask them to pray while he also prayed for their ministry. And that went on for years before what we know as the Great Awakening occurred. Same thing was true with the Second Great Awakening. Um, famously, and this is amazing, uh, did you know that thousands of people were converted in New York City during the 1850s? There was a period of revival, even in New York City. And how did that begin? It began with 20 businessmen meeting at lunchtime uh, on Fulton Street in downtown New York City to pray for revival. And that group of 20 uh, went on for a while as a small group until uh, revival came. And before you knew it, hundreds and thousands of people were meeting at lunchtime in New York City at different churches to pray and to hear preaching. Uh, there's, I can, I, the, the Korean revivals is another one. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there are a tremendous amount of, I mean, of Koreans who are Christians. Did you know that? In Korea, not just in America. Uh, in fact, it's by far the, the Asian country with the highest percentage of Christians per capita. And that, that, most of that occurred after the Second World War. Um, how did that happen? Well, uh, missionaries were sent there after the Second World War, um, for sure. But the Koreans who were first converted began to pray uh, for days on end. This is a famous story of how the Koreans would go out to the mountains. This is what they did. They went out of town and would, would gather together on the mountains and intercede for days that the same gospel faith might come to their family members and friends that they had received. And Korea has been transformed. Uh, Korea is actually a great sender of missionaries today. Uh, and even has sent some here. There are Korean missionaries from Korea here to do missions work in our country. It's truly amazing. Prayer is what makes these things go. Because God has ordained to work through the prayers of his people. 
Uh, God's promises don't make prayer unnecessary. And they don't make the task before us easy. In fact, God's, prayer, God's promises make prayer necessary and possible. <laughs> uh, we can pray knowing that the Lord will hear us and answer according to his will. Uh, in all of our evangelism, prayer should be the first priority. The first thing they did is they prayed. And that should be the first thing we do. If you are interested in evangelizing and in sharing your faith with people you know, here's what you should do. Write their name down and start praying for them. If you, if you have not written their names down and you're not praying for them, this is bold to say, but don't share with them yet. Pray for them first. Pray for them first. Uh, and then share with them by all means. But pray. Bathe it in prayer. Let me reiterate that question I asked a minute ago. What has God promised to our evangelistic work that we're not praying for? All right, that's the first thing, prayer. Second thing, they provided in that 10-day window while they were waiting, they provided for the ongoing ministry of God's word. And this is the whole matter in verses 15 to 26 of replacing Judas. Replacing Judas. Uh, it tells us in verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and said. Now, when it says Peter stood up, that doesn't simply mean that he stood up. Literally, he was sitting and then he stood, although it does mean that. I think it means more than that. It's almost like a, something's happening in Simon Peter. He stood up and took leadership in the group. He stood up and took initiative to do something that needed to be done. And, and he knew that it needed to be done because he spent time in prayer reflecting on the scriptures. All right, so look at it. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, this is interesting, and it's dynamite here. Uh, Peter is saying, look, while I was praying, I was reading through the Psalms. We, we were singing some Psalms together. I was reading them. I was thinking about them. And I just realized the Holy Spirit spoke to David about Judas in the Psalms. Which now tells us what we need to do to replace him so that the church has the full complement of 12 apostles to begin the ministry. We, we can't begin it with 11. We got to have 12. Uh, Jesus picked 12 in the beginning. Because, why did he pick 12? Well, I think the indications are he picked 12 because Israel started with 12 in the Old Testament. The 12 sons of Jacob. That was the foundation of the nation of Israel. Well, the foundation of Christ's New Testament church is also 12 men, 12 apostles. When one dropped out, not just by natural death, but by his own apostasy... Peter read in the scriptures how that apostasy was foretold and the replacement of the apostate was also foretold. And so he took the initiative to carry about that process of ordaining a new apostle. He was numbered among us, he says, and he was allotted a share in this ministry by Jesus. And yet he became a guide to those who had arrested Jesus. 
Uh, it tells us, by the way, a little aside on Judas there in verse 18 and 19. And I like how the ESV does it. Do you see how at the end of 17 there's a close quote? And then there's a parenthesis in the beginning of 18. And then there's another parenthesis at the end of 19. And then an open quote again at the beginning of 20. That's showing you that this is not what Peter said. This is Luke adding in some background information of what went down with Judas uh, in order for him to die. Just in case you had not read his first book. So this is for those who are just walking in on the sequel. And they haven't read Luke's gospel. They need to know what happened to Judas. And it tells you. Uh, a field was acquired with the money that he received to betray Jesus. And he went out into that field, and one gospel tells us he hung himself on a tree, which is true. Uh, Luke tells us, additionally, that when he hung himself, he also fell from the tree, and his body burst open and spilled on the field, which is why that field became known as the field of blood. Now, we just read this morning about um, Absalom. Do you see any similarities with Absalom's death and Judas' death? Kind of exactly the same. And um, I believe, based on what we read about Absalom, he busted open. And his, you know, as it says there, his bowels also gushed out. Remember, uh, Absalom was uh, killed 13 times. Um, you know, and it was spears. And so the death of Judas reminds us very much of the death of Absalom. And there's a reason for that. Judas, like Absalom, was a traitor. Judas, like Absalom, betrayed a specific individual who was important in God's plan. God's anointed. David, the anointed king, and Jesus, the anointed Messiah. And so the two traitors have a similar Downfall, a similar demise that Luke wants us to know about. Notice how Luke doesn't pull any punches. He's not writing the book on how to sympathize with Judas. Uh, he's not trying to get us to psychologize Judas. He simply says in verse 18, this man received the reward of his wickedness. And that goes back to what we were talking about this morning. I love how the Bible just calls evil evil. It doesn't try to gets you to feel warm and fuzzy about it. It just calls it what it is. And it displays for everybody to see the outcome of evil if it's not repented of. Uh, I was really struck this week by reading this particular quotation by a man writing in the 1920s about the book of Acts. And he wrote something about Judas that I think is just super insightful and also very convicting if you'll allow me to read it to you. He said, The true view of Judas's character and career is not that which makes him either a monster of iniquity or an innocent blunderer. Uh, sometimes people have tried to, to, to make him one or the other. He, he was a monster. He was some unhuman demon person. He wasn't, which makes it even more scary. Uh, he also wasn't an innocent blunderer, right? He, he wasn't just doing his best, and it just happened God picked him to be the betrayer, and oh man, you know, I, I got the short end of the stick. That was not it. He was neither of those. This is what the writer says. This caught me, and it really caused me to pray. It says, his case is painfully familiar. He, his is the example of one who, 
in the light of close companionship with Christ, clings to an evil passion. Under such conditions, character most rapidly deteriorates. Did you hear what he said? When someone has close proximity to Jesus, but doesn't inwardly know Jesus, instead is harboring an evil passion within that's secret and hidden, but yet they're on the outside going with Jesus. Those are the conditions for the most rapid deterioration of character and for the most rapid kind of downfall. For Judas, it was his love of gain. We learn that in the Gospels, that the thing that Judas nursed in his heart that was evil was his love of money, his desire to be rich. He stole from the treasury of the disciples. His love of gain gradually becomes his master, and when circumstances have so combined, he is willing for a few pieces of silver to betray his Lord. His career is not a study in psychology for the curious. It is a practical warning for every follower of Christ. When I read that, I immediately closed the book and prayed, Lord, being close to Jesus is dangerous business. Because if we're hypocritical in our closeness to Jesus, whew, sometimes we wonder, okay, why is it that some of the greatest evil in the world is found amongst God's people? Have you ever wondered that? Um, why are some of the most atrocious things you could ever hear about are committed by people who say they are believers? This is why. God will not allow his name to be profaned by hypocrites. They will be exposed. And they usually will be exposed by some great and sudden downfall. They've nursed something secret within, and suddenly it festers out. Judas becomes the all-time example of this. He was an apostle, for goodness sake. He was one of the twelve. But he didn't really love Jesus in his heart. Instead, he loved money. And it got him. And so Peter, when he thinks about this thing going on, he's reading the Psalms, and he reads from Psalm 69, which is what is quoted there in verse 20. But it is written in the book of Psalms, Peter again talking. May his camp be desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Psalm 69 is about traitors. It's about how the anointed one of God is being betrayed by his friends. And in that psalm it says, the one who betrays is going to become desolate and he should be made desolate. That's what he deserves. That's where he deserves to go, into darkness. Peter's like, okay. Thank you, Lord, for telling me what happened to Judas and explaining it to me. And then he went on and he was singing Psalm 109 later in the prayer service. And Psalm 109 is also about traitors. And there it says, let another take his office in Psalm 109.8. And Peter puts them both together and says, I got a sermon for y'all. The Holy Spirit's already told us what to do in Judas's case. Judas went to the place where he needed to go, which is what uh, he says, you know, Judas went to uh, his own place, verse 25. He turned aside. But it's our responsibility to put someone else in his office. The man has fallen. The man has become dishonorable and rejected. But the office itself is still necessary. And so let's get together and do what we need to do 
to pick the next person to be the 12th apostle so that the church will have a regularly trained and, and qualified ministry to lead us in this mission. And that's what they do. The apostles were the first ministers, but they were special ministers. They, they weren't just a minister like I am. I'm just a lowly, lowercase m minister. And apostles and an uppercase a apostle, they received direct knowledge of Jesus and direct word from Jesus, enough to even be writers of the New Testament. And so Peter goes on to say in verse 21, this person has to be someone who accompanied us during the whole time that Jesus ministered. He had to have been there when Jesus was baptized, and he had to have been there every day until he was taken up into heaven. Who do, you, who do we got? They started naming names. They came up with two, Joseph and Matthias. All right, now we got a quandary. We got one spot open, we got two men to fill it. What do we do? What do they do? They prayed first. They prayed. This prayer meeting has got some legs to it, doesn't it? And now they're saying, all right, to fill the spot of Judas as a, you know, the spot of a witness of the resurrection, we need to pray about this. And so they prayed. They said, you, Lord, you, Jesus, who knows the hearts of men, you know what's in these two men's hearts. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take the apostleship from Judas, to take his place. And then, in verse 26, they do something strange to us. They cast lots. Now, this is the last time you'll ever see the apostles cast lots in the book of Acts. Um, because I don't think it's the way we're supposed to make decisions now. But why did they cast lots? Why was that their first instinct? Because that's what they did in the Old Testament. The Urim and the Thurman. The Urim and Thurman. Uh, these were two stones that the priests had made and put in the breast pockets of their fancy priestly clothes. And they would use the Urim and the Thurman to uh, ask the Lord for guidance. And the Lord would use the lots, the stones, to guide them into his will. That they, they engaged in believing prayer, and God gave them his will through prayer by the use of these stones. Now, it's interesting that once the Holy Spirit comes in power on Pentecost, they'd use these no more, which proves something important, I think. Prior to the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, they needed things like lots, just like they needed sacrifices and just like they needed priests with fancy clothes and a fancy temple on top of a hill. They needed things that we don't need today because we now have resident within us the Pentecostal spirit, the Holy Spirit of Pentecost to guide us. Um, and so they don't cast lots anymore, but, but now they're still living somewhat one foot in the Old Testament, some, one foot in the New. They're, they're right on the border. And so they cast the lots and Matthias is chosen and the church, through prayer, has a leadership to lead them into the next phase of, of their evangelism. Now, just because they have a leadership doesn't mean that all of them aren't also playing a role in the witnessing. The whole point of this series, we're going to see everybody has a role to play in the witnessing. But foundational to that role we all have to play is that God has ordained that there be people who are well-qualified, who are called by him and trained by him, gifted by him to lead the ministry of the word. 
The apostles would give way to elders and deacons, to ministers of the gospel, which we still have in the church today. And it's necessary for an evangelistic church to have a well-prepared and a ministry that has good integrity. Not a Judas-style ministry, but a ministry like these other 12. Men who are men of prayer, devoting themselves to leading the whole church in the work that God is calling all of us to do. Which is what we'll speak about next week. Because now that they have these 12, they're ready to receive the promise. In 10 days after the ascension, the house where they're sitting is about to get interesting. That room is about to get shaken up. And a new thing in the history of God's work among his people is going to begin. All right, so come back next week to be continued. Dot, dot, dot.